baptisms are a very hard act to follow. <laughs> right? But we're going to do a little drill. I'm going to say something, and I'm going to see how you respond. Christ has risen. Look at that. It's been 21 days and you haven't forgotten your line. In the wisdom of the church, a long time ago, they decided Easter wasn't celebratable in one day only. And so we have what's called Eastertide, and we've been celebrating Easter each Sunday since, and we continue today. And so I want to take you back to that Sunday morning, April 9. Were you on time for worship? Most of you likely were, because it's hard to find parking if you aren't, right? And by the way, the sun doesn't stay set until you get there. It rises if you're in the early, thing. if you, you're late for sunrise, you miss it. There are reasons to get to Easter worship on time. And that's sort of ironic, because I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the disciples didn't get to Easter on time. You ever notice that? Nobody's waiting at the tomb, kind of got their seat, tapping their watch, waiting for Jesus to come out. The women come to embalm him, and he's already broken out of the, out of the tomb. And then, it's not like they're all a little late and they're, they, I'm sorry, Jesus. We, Jesus has to chase them. So over these weeks, we've, we've watched Jesus walk around in the garden and find Mary Magdalene. Thomas took us through that on Easter Sunday. And then John reminded us that we shouldn't think of Thomas as just a doubter, but notice that Jesus had to walk out and find the disciples, and then he had to walk out again a week later and find the disciples and Thomas. He has to chase people. In another story, he's going to chase Peter and have breakfast with him on a beach. Last week, Whitney took us through the road to Emmaus where Jesus catches up with two disciples and walks along the way, and they don't quite get who he is until they eat eat the supper together, right? Well, this week we continue with the guy who is latest of all of them. In fact, he calls himself untimely. The Apostle Paul doesn't come to mind when we think of Easter, but he's not in the Gospels, right? He's not in the Gospels, but he thought that Jesus appearing to him was one of those resurrection appearances. In fact, he calls himself, he, he's listing off all of the, the appearances of Jesus to people, and he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we're going to include him in our Easter celebrations. And to do that, I want you to look at a piece of art, right? That's a lot of people have tried to portray this. It's a freaky moment. Paul is on his way to persecute people, and he gets kind of a bright light, knocks him off his his feet or his horse. Look at the horse look up at Jesus. That is a, that is a curious and well-behaved horse. Um, and then you've got Paul and you've got a couple others who are with him looking up. I want to I read the passage, the actual Acts 9 passage, and I want you to think of this and see if they got it right. And the way I want you to think of it is, did they get it right as far as Paul seeing Jesus? I mean, this is a great picture of Jesus in the clouds. It's a 16th century Italian oil painting, right? But did Paul see Jesus? I want you to listen and, and make your own choice about that. Let's listen together for the word of God as it comes to us from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, writes Luke, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, 
so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked, well, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is the word of the Lord. So did Paul see Jesus? He just heard things, right? In fact, the next verses say that the whole experience blinded him. Is he need to help getting into the city, right? Paul doesn't see Jesus, and so he's stuck with this experience where he hears a voice from heaven. And did you notice what the voice says? It's a voice from heaven. It's not somebody down at the corner store or at the synagogue. It's a voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now work that puzzle in your head. You got a voice coming from heaven. You're going to Damascus to harass some people who follow this way that you think is a blind alley in Judaism, right? You're going, you've got your papers, all that stuff, and you're going to get to real bodies in Damascus. And on the way, you get stopped by a bright light, and the voice says, I'm the guy you're persecuting. That's a pretty good puzzle, right? How are you them, and how are they you Everything we know about the Apostle Paul tells us he was a gifted child, right? He was number one in his class at rabbinic school. He, he, he has all these sort of allusions and references in his letter that tell us that he was engaging with Greco-Roman philosophy. He was a gifted child. And you know what gifted child do, children do when they get a puzzle? They won't stop till they figure it out. In fact, a Yale uh, sociology and psychology department combined to do a a kind of a mean trick on gifted kids. They gave them puzzles that were irresolvable, unsolvable, right? And, and then they gave them to a test group, uh, another group that wasn't quite as gifted. And the test group rightly kind of stopped and didn't kill themselves about this thing. The, the gifted kids just kept going on it. They wouldn't stop because they had to get to the end. Paul was a gifted child. And so when he sees this strange conundrum, he, I just picture him crunching up his forehead and trying to figure it out and staying with it until he can actually get it. What is it about an unembodied voice who thinks he's in the bodies I was about to menace? Right? And I think he thought a long time about it. Tried to do the math and finally arrived at it sometime between when he was struck down on the road and he, when he wrote the letters that are in the New Testament. Because by the time he gets to the letters, He's saying, I get it. That, in, that voice is Jesus, and these people are Jesus' body. Right? In 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at the passage now. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking to this kind of unruly group in one of the churches he started in the Greek city of Corinth. And he's talking to them, and he's, and he's telling them, I know you're divided, and I'm not at all surprised. And then through the letter, he shows them all kinds of ways in which they should agree with one another and figure things out. He gets to chapter 12, and he, and he writes this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, 
but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit. Baptism comes into play, right? Dayton and baptism come into play. We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So what do you do with unruly Corinthians who aren't getting along and their differences are starting to form divisions among them? You remind them, and notice he doesn't say, you guys are like a body. He says, you are the body of Christ. He reminds them that as many bodies as there are in this little living room where they're listening to this letter, there's actually only one, the body of Christ. I don't know what an estimate of this room is right now, I'd have to count the choir, and you have to throw in the, the clergy, and, and I, I'm not going to do the counting. But whatever the number is, that's probably what you would have answered if I had asked how many bodies are there in the room five minutes ago. But really, what's the answer according to Paul? How many bodies are in the room? One. One body. The body of Christ. And so, when Paul does that, when he brings home, now you all ought to behave differently because you're the body of Christ, he doesn't stop there. He actually gives us a little insight as to how they're thinking of one another and what's causing these rifts among them. And so the next passage is exactly after, right after the one we just read. Now, if the foot should say, you know, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't for that reason stop being part of the body. And, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm, I really don't belong it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If all were one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body, so the eye cannot say to the hand, <laughs> I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Right? We've got talking body parts now. <laughs> right? We've got body parts talking to one another. And the first ones, you know, you know I'm, I'm not an eye. And you kind of have to be an eye to really be a part of the body. So I guess I'm not. This sort of insecurity, this sort of, I don't know that I have a place in this room. I don't know that I have a place in this body. And on the other hand, you've got an eye saying, <laughs> I don't need a hand. Frankly, I'm good on my own, right? Paul doesn't like the picture of a body that's all elbows or all eyes or all of anything. He says that the way that we're different was actually God's design. And that if anybody in the room says, you know what, I'm not really one of those people who has a good part for this, what's Paul going to say? You're absolutely needed. And Thomas pointed that out when he walked Dayton down the aisle, right? He said, we're going to need you around here. You're going to teach us stuff, right? Paul would have said to that insecure, I don't know if I can bring anything to the table person, we need you. And he said to the person who says, <laughs> I don't need them. He says, yes, you do. Everybody in that ancient Corinthian living room and everybody in this worship space 
is a part of the body, and therefore we need you. Paul pulled this out amid the divided Corinthians, and they were divided over a lot of stuff. He knew that their difference had turned into division, and he wanted to put a stop to it. And so he brought his Damascus Road experience and this strange thing that that guy is in this body to bear on their understanding of who they are in Christ. Now let's look around in our time. The Corinthians couldn't agree on things, and then there's us. We're red, we're blue, we're a lot of other things that don't fathom one another. You can see these brains are taken over by an elephant or a donkey. In fact, if I did thought bubbles around the room right now, I would see a whole lot of different thoughts. Some of you would be, where did I park, right? But others would be processing things according to a red language or a blue language. And that is actually, for Paul, an absolute blessing. Because we need both elbows and eyes. We need both knees and feet. We need all the parts. We need both reds and blues. We need both blues and reds. We need every color between. There's nobody in the room whose way of doing the world isn't going to be important for this body of Christ. And you know what makes Covenant Church so strange in our setting with blue, red, blue, blue minds and red line, minds is other churches are sorting so that they can all think the same things. Christianity Today wrote, wrote an article, or featured an article in November of this last year, in which they had done research and they, they concluded more of American people, more Americans, want their church to share their politics. What does that mean? I walk in and in 15 minutes, if they haven't sung my song, I'm out of here. And there are more and more red churches and more and more blue churches, and the blue and red dotted churches that look a little purple from a distance are coming fewer and fewer, and here you are. I know some of you. I know that you're blue and you're red, and I know that you sit alongside one another and sing the doxology together, right? You sing together. You worship together. That's unusual in our time. That's unusual in our time, and it's also hard. How many of you love, love to talk to somebody you disagree with? In fact, this year I'm going to have a Thanksgiving dinner with just people who, who are going to get into conflict, right? No, no, no. The, we know the Thanksgiving dinner table where it blows up because somebody brings up that subject. We know the family, the water cooler, the friendship that gets kind of roughed up by these kinds of differences. And then we go back and Paul says, you're one body and you have different purposes. Bring them. Covenant Church is a blessing in this setting, an anomaly, a strange resurrectionish thing walking around. But I know from talking to some of you that we could get better at this. Right? That we haven't kind of grasped the prize yet. That we're still awkward, that we don't really know, like our culture, we really don't know to, how to talk to one another. We may sit in the pews with one another, but we don't like to bring up those things anyway. Today is a solemn day in, in many places because three hours east of us yesterday, 
a family was shot by a gunman who lived just next door. Some of you have seen the news, others of you haven't. It was a month ago or more after Nashville and after Louisville that Thomas and John and Jill and a number of others of us sat down and asked, what shall we have our courageous conversation on in the month of May? And we thought our group could use a chance to talk about guns. Because we've got people who are stridently on one side of the issue, people who are stridently on the other side of the issue. It's a very hard one. Let's talk. And then we all shivered a little bit. Because <laughs> it's hard to talk about hard things. And when you get a bunch of people in a room talking about hard things, it kind of magnifies the issue. But these courageous conversations aren't meant to solve things. They're meant to give us time to understand one another in a world that's not trying to understand each other. They're there to give us a chance to see that we all, in our differentness, all of us, bring things that the body of Christ needs, as odd as it sounds, given our culture's tribalism. And so, as we go toward May 17, 17 days out, on a Wednesday evening, as has become our custom, we did a couple of these in the fall, we are going to gather and talk with each other about one of the hardest issues for our culture to process right now. Because we need to get better at this. We need to understand one another more. We need to be more the body of Christ, even in the difficult times when we can't fathom why each other thinks the things we think. And so, 17 days out, we're going to gather at six, uh, 5 for food, 6.15 for the conversation, and just talk about this. And I can guarantee you a couple things. We aren't going to make policy. Right? I said in the early service, I don't know that we have anybody who's a legislator in Washington or even in the State House. And I had an aide come up and say, well, I'm kind of in the legislative process. So I know there are politicos among us. But, but we aren't going to make policy on the 17th. What we're going to do is the unheard of thing is of asking a hard question in a body of people who disagree on it just so that we can love one another better, just so that we can be the diverse body of Christ in all the glory of it. It's no accident, friends, that after laying down this body image in chapter 12, Paul goes to maybe his most famous passage. But that, that passage that's famous because it's read at weddings all the time, 1 Corinthians 13, wasn't written for a wedding. It was written for a group of people whose difference had made them divide. And to that group, Paul said, love is patient. Love is kind, never boastful or envious or proud. He brought agape love just after he told them, figure out how to be a, a body. How about if on the 17th, you and I gather and flex our agape love muscles? and fail a little bit and succeed a little bit and get better at being Christ's one body in the world because heaven knows the world needs it. The great, the great female saint, Teresa of Avila, about 500 years ago, spoke words that are extremely appropriate to where we are. We started with clocks. We started with being to Easter late today, uh, being on time or late to Easter. We're going to end with timing also. In these immortal words, Teresa of Avila said, Christ has no body 
but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. You are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. Friends, we have a chance to be the body in a, in a splendid way that is a love letter to Austin and a love letter to the nation. All we have to do is gather and talk. All we have to do is gather and listen. All we have to do is figure out how to be one body in Christ. Shall we gather? Amen. <laughs>